Good morning, everyone. Isn't that a great story? It's a great segue into uh, to what we're talking about this morning, becoming um, compelling Christ followers. And uh, there's lots of ways that uh, people have devised to, to do this, to make the gospel attractive and compelling to people. Um, very interesting ways. My uh, wife was uh, up in Manitowoc recently. She was there uh, with her cross-country team for a, for a meet. And on the way back home, they stopped at a restaurant uh, to have some dinner. And uh, at this restaurant, they were handing out uh, gospel tracts. Okay? Uh, now, if you grew up in a certain church at a certain time, you know what a tract is. Okay? How many of you know what a tract is? Okay? For those of you who are uninitiated, uh, a, a tract is a little uh, religious pamphlet that is designed uh, to, uh, to explain to people what Jesus is all about and what the gospel is all about. It's just kind of short, so they're designed to get read and kind of close the deal at the end. And this one that she brought back with her was uh, really kind of interesting. I've never, I, I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like this tract before. I still have it with me. I've got some up there on the overhead for it. Uh, this one is called uh, The Beast. All right. Ha- have you ever have you ever read the one of, about the beast at all before? And I, I found some things out. It's very interesting that, that this is the, what the world is like today. OK, life as it is today. I'll kill you for that. I hate you. Oh, you remind me of my fourth wife. OK, you know, all, all this stuff going on. I'm thinking, yes, just like downtown West Bend. Okay, okay. And, and not only that, but I learned, this is, this is really interesting, is that the world's actually gonna get a lot worse. It's gonna turn out to look like this. The world becomes one gigantic witch's coven. And Satan is already saturating the world. So I'm looking at this, I'm going, I hope I don't live long enough <laughs> to be around, uh, kinda when that happens. And there's actually more stuff in there, stuff that I don't even wanna put up on the overhead because of the younger people in our family this morning. Okay? And, and, and so you read this, and I don't know what you think about all of that. I mean, I know that God can speak through, you know, a, a donkey, uh, but uh, maybe he can speak through like this as well. I don't know. That's kind of a pastor's joke. There's this Old Testament story about God speaking through a donkey. So if you're not a pastor, you don't get there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, but the response on the cross-country team was that this is kind of a joke. Is that, that, that the net effect of, of something like this is, is not that it drew people towards Jesus. It doesn't attract them towards Jesus, but it actually had the, re- for most people, it had the opposite effect. That it, it, it actually served to reinforce a caricature of Christ followers that we are judgmental, self-righteous, arrogant people who have all the answers to life and just want let, to let people know that we're right and they're wrong, and that if you don't come over to uh, really believing what we believe or embracing what, what, what we embrace, then chances are pretty good that you're going to end up in hell. Okay? And so a lot of people, when they think of the word uh, evangelical Christian, really the, the, the character, the, the, the image that comes to mind is something like this. Okay? Protesting Christians with placards, okay, talking about how if you don't repent, you will go to hell. Isn't that compelling? Like, makes you want to go out and just join the movement, doesn't it? 
Like, yeah, how can I, how can I sign up for that? The interesting thing to me is that somehow we have become experts at doing the very thing. Okay, we, please take that off. There you go. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, we've become experts at doing the very thing that Jesus said that he never came to do. That twice in the Gospel of John, Jesus explicitly says that he did not come to condemn the world. He says in John 3:17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And then later on, John 12, he says, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. It has always been interesting to me or intriguing to me that we as followers of Jesus Christ have somehow become known for the very thing that Jesus said he did not come to do. He said he did not come to condemn the world or to judge the world, but somehow this movement that bears his name has become infamous for becoming, for being, being known as being judgmental and condemning people. And so we are in this series that we're calling Compelling Christianity because we have this sneaky suspicion that Christianity in America has become anything but compelling. In fact, the opposite is true is that we have become so compelling uh, as a movement that the fastest-growing religious demographic segment in America today are the nuns. Okay? Not nuns like religious teachers in a Catholic school that wear a fancy hat and everything like that. But nuns as in none of the above. Like when they ask people, what religion do you ascribe to? And they give different options. They check the box, none. And they are the fastest-growing religious demographic segment in the United States today. And you might say, well, what fault of that is mine? You know, or what fault of that is ours? The world is a pretty bad place. I mean, that cartoon that I put up there, you know, you might be like, that's not too far from the truth, Mike. Mm, Fair enough, I'll I'll grant you that. that. Overall, in the United States, life is not generally going in a positive direction. If, if you have spent any time in the correctional uh, system in, the, in, in Washington County, or if you've spent any time as a teacher in our school district, you know that that, that is an undeniable fact. Okay? But to me, this just underscores the fact that what we need to do now more than ever is present a compelling, convincing, persuasive, beautiful inspiring version of Christianity to our world because the world needs it now more than ever. And if we don't do it, who's going to? So to help us figure out how to do this and how to do this well, I want to encourage you to turn to Titus chapter 2 in your Bibles. We've been going through this book of Titus. You'll find that on page 844. And Titus is a helper or a partner of Paul in the first century, and he's located on the island of Crete. Now, if you think that the America is, that America is in a bad place today, okay, you should have you should have been on the island of Crete. Most ancient commentators uh, routinely denounce Crete as being known for treachery, for known for drunkenness, being known for all sorts of debauchery and all sorts of immorality. It was just infamous for that. Now, Crete was this island is about 150 miles long and about 35 miles wide at the widest point, just right off the, or the coast of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. 
Um, so picture, you know, like Highway 41 and Highway 43 going from Milwaukee all the way up to Green Bay. You know, they kind of diverge and come back together again. Take that chunk of land, drop it 90 degrees, put it in the Mediterranean, and you got Crete. Okay, there's Crete. And, and so Titus is located at, on Crete, and Paul is telling them, basically, you know, this is how you, you are to instruct all the churches on the island of, of Crete. And, um, and Crete, was, as we've been learning, is not a real nice place to visit. In fact, it had the exact opposite reputation. Um, the ancient Greek historian says this uh, in the 2nd century B.C. about Cretan. So this is just a little bit, a, a, a few hundred years before, um, before Paul landed there. He says, Greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches any sort of gain whatsoever. Cretans, by their ingrained greediness, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murder, and civil wars. I will now address myself to showing that the Cretan constitution deserves neither praise nor imitation. So you don't want to be like a Cretan, is basically what he's saying. Now, with few exceptions, you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete, and no public policy more inequitable. Okay? I don't understand everything that that guy said, but I don't think Crete is a very nice place to go to. Okay? And Paul, writing to Titus, who's then going to kind of implement his instructions all throughout the churches there, explains and describes how the believers from various demographic backgrounds and various social strata uh, can live on this corrupt island of Crete and make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. In fact, this is Paul's whole big idea in this whole section of scripture that we're going to read, that so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Paul, this is Paul's big idea. This is what Paul is trying to convey. He's saying, listen, I want to write to you guys and show you how to live, how to make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. And what he's going to teach to, to Titus and all of us by extension today is that the most compelling argument and evidence for the gospel of Jesus Christ are lives that have been changed by Jesus. The most compelling and, and, and evidence and argument for the gospel is lives that have been transformed and that have been changed by Jesus Christ. Not putting out, you know, a little tract on the Antichrist or anything like that. Not, you know, having real cool services or anything like that with good coffee and great music. All that stuff is, is well, well and good. The most compelling argument for the gospel are our own lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ. So let's read a little bit about this together. Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. He says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders, or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, 
seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, there's a lot of stuff here, at, for, and at first blush, there's stuff in here that we may not like, you know, to hear at first. In fact, Paul talking about slavery, like slavery, we haven't had slavery in this country for over 150 years, and Paul seems to be talking about it in a way that he's almost condoning it. Okay, we're going to be getting to all that later on, but, uh, but first I want to just remind you of the backdrop, remind you of the backdrop of where these Cretan Christians are coming out of. They are coming out of the society, this cultural milieu that was just dark and treacherous. If you were to think of what Crete was like, the best instance that I can think of is, is here you go, Pirates of the Caribbean. All right? This is, this is kind of what Cretan culture was like. Okay? Think about the characters in the Pirates series and how they acted and, and, and how they behaved and stuff like that. And Paul is saying, listen, if you come out of that, you're going to want to be different than the rest of them. And he explains what this looks like for various different demographic segments. And he starts out with the older men. He says that older men are to be temperate, worthy of respect, and self-controlled. There's some overlap between these three items. But the big idea is that they are supposed to be sober or sober-minded, metaphorically speaking. Again, if your typical Cretan is kind of like Jack Sparrow, and he's at various levels of drunkenness all throughout the, the films... A guy who decides to live a sober life and a serious life is going to stand out from the crowd. My family and I lived in Russia for almost a decade, and when we were there, the alcoholism rates in Russia are astronomical. They're over 50%. Russians, they like their vodka, yes? Okay? And, and, uh, and that's a real problem. And so for, when men become followers of Jesus Christ... One of the first things they do when they decide to let Jesus change them is that they just throw away drinking altogether because they want to stand out. They want to be different. They want to be distinct. And they're allowing Jesus to change them. And people are put on inquiry when they come across a man who doesn't drink. They're like, really? I've never, never heard of that before. And that in and of itself becomes a compelling argument for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a friend. Uh, his name is Kurt. He's a part of our, our uh, um, fellowship here. In fact, I'm going to out him. He's right there. Okay? You want to talk to him? So when I first met Kurt, okay, it was at a Good Friday service. We were at the county, uh, county fair setting up for the Good Friday service. And I got a chance to, to meet Kurt. And I was with Scott Cole at the time. And Scott Cole was next to me. He says, hey, you look at Kurt. He says, are you Kurt Williams? And he's like, uh, yeah, last I checked. And he says, he says, I think I played pool against you in, in Allenton. And Kurt's like, there's a very good chance that you did that, you know. And then Kurt went off to do some other stuff work. And Scott turns to me and says, I saw that guy take on three biker dudes in a fight and win. Okay? I think he's been kicked out of every bar in Washington County. Okay? And I'm like, oh, wow. And as I got to know Kurt, I didn't know any of that. He's just one of the most kindest, affectionate guys. In fact, Kurt's idea of personal space is a little bit unnerving for me. His, his hugs get a little bit long. You know, sometimes. But, you know, and, 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 but he's patient and kind and enduring all these things that Paul talks about here. And now Kurt 
is a handyman. He's actually up, uh, up in Sheboygan County doing a job right now with a friend who knew him from his previous life. And this friend is put on inquiry. And he's like, what's with you? What's changed? And this has given Kurt an entree to tell him about what Jesus Christ has been doing in his life. But it begins with a life that has been changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. And then Paul talks about the, the, the man that turns to the older women. He starts off with saying the, the word likewise, or in the same way that, that the way men are to be temperate and worthy of respect, women are to be reverent in the way they live. And the way they do this is by avoiding two habits that women on Crete, I, I guess, were well known for. They were known for being slanders, that is backbiting, gossiping, being drama queens, and being addicted to much wine. Evidently, following the lead of the men, the women had a real propensity for wine at the time and getting drunk on wine. And Paul is saying, now that they have been adopted by God, now that they've had their sins forgiven, now that the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of them, that they are not to be controlled by wine any longer. In fact, Paul goes says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, don't be controlled by wine any longer, but now be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be the one, the, the, the controlling influence in your lives. And then, once, once they allow the, the Holy Spirit to control their lives and be the dominant uh, ethic in their lives, verse 4 and 5, he says, Then they are able to train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. So Paul is saying here is that he's, he's saying something like what we're moving to here at Kettlebrook as a family is that everybody has a role to play. Older women are to be mentoring younger women, teaching them how to raise their families, how to love their children, how to, how to love their husbands in a situation. There's real mentoring that's going on here in the island of Crete. And there's real mentoring that's going on here at Kettlebrook, too. In fact, just on Friday in this very room, we had a MOPS panel going on. And in the MOPS panel, you had older women who were on the panel speaking to younger women who had little kids and diapers and, you know, toddlers and stuff like that. And there's good mentoring going on. And what Paul is saying is that the older women are to mentor the younger women so that they know how to live life well and that their families and their marriages will reflect what the gospel does in a person's life. And for those of us who have come to Christ later in life and are not from a Christian background, not, didn't grow up in a family that followed Christ, we need this more than ever. My wife, Kara, did not grow up in a, in a Christian family. She did not know up, grow up in a family that followed Jesus Christ. She doesn't remember her mother ever telling her that she loves her. She doesn't remember ever getting a hug from her mom or having any kind of affection shown to her at all. She doesn't remember her mother ever sitting down with her and asking her, how was your day today? What happened at school? She never got any of that. So you know where she had to go for it? She had to go to other women. And when we were first married, she sought out other women and said, teach me. Show me what it looks like. Show me what it looks like to have a Christian family, to be a Christian uh, wife, to be a Christian mom, because I've never seen it growing up. And she did such a good job at being such a good student that she is 
one of the most comforting, one of the most nurturing moms I have ever met. In fact, she loves our children so much that she stood me up for a date last night so that she could be home with her kids. Can you believe that? You know? And so, and, and, and when people look at Kara's life, they just naturally think that she just was naturally like that, but she didn't grow up in that environment. And now she leads this, this life, and just bragging my wife for a, she leads this life that's such a compelling life for Jesus Christ that people come to her and seek her out because they see Jesus in her. And Paul is saying this is exactly what the people on Crete need to do is that the most compelling argument and evidence for the gospel of Jesus Christ are lives that have been changed and transformed by Jesus himself. And then he goes on, he he says this, he says that they can train younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. You guys just love that word, subject to your husbands? Yeah, like, ew, ew, that's, oh, that, I don't like that, Mike, that seems, uh, like, oppressive, that seems unfair, and, and I will grant you that, I will grant you that, it seems like that, in, in another letter in, in Ephesians, Paul's going to talk about the fact that in a good, healthy Christian marriage, there's mutual uh, deference, and there's mutual respect uh, and submission to one another, but here, in this section, Paul is not concerned about equality, He's not concerned about fairness. What is he concerned about? Making the gospel of Jesus Christ compelling and attractive to those around him. And 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 if a wife on the island of Crete becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, and then she goes off and she becomes engaged in every single meeting available to her and is absent from the house and absent from her husband, and all of a sudden she's, she's gone all the time, that is not going to be compelling for a lot of husbands, is it? All of a sudden, my wife is now married to Jesus or the church, and I don't get to see her anymore. That's not compelling. And, and what Paul is saying is that in everything we do, in how we behave, and how we interact with those that we're closest to, we have to figure out, how do I do this in a way that makes Jesus look good? And that's why I love the fact that we started out with this whole video with Barry and Melissa Gordon up here. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? What was it that drew Barry to Jesus? It was Melissa. It was his wife. It was his wife's constant love and concern and care for him, even through some of the most hardest times. And eventually he gave his whole life to Jesus Christ. But it was the, it was the compelling life of his wife, Melissa, that started the whole process off. Paul is saying here, the most compelling argument and evidence for the gospel is going to be lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ. And Paul even, he then even takes it down to the level of slaves in the world they lived in. Now, when we hear the word slavery, we have this knee-jerk reaction. And we should have a knee-jerk reaction to the word slavery. But let me tell you a few things about the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world. First of all, slavery was not imposed upon one specific race of people like it was in our history. Okay? If people were in debt and they couldn't pay off their debts, they oftentimes sold themselves to their bondholders in slavery. Some, some people estimate that in ancient Rome, up to 85% of the population was slaves at the time. And they belonged to somebody. 
Second of all, slaves, slaves had rights. They were allowed to accumulate money of their own, and oftentimes they could be, that money could be used to purchase their own freedom or to start a business when they were free from slavery. So there's this very different picture of slavery than maybe what we might think of or conceive of as slavery. So what Paul says to slaves, where 85% of the population are slaves, could be applied very easily to employees as well. Is roughly 85% of our population employees? Probably pretty close to that. <laughs> we're all employees of some kind. And what if, what if we were to read this for employees? Teach employees to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal for them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Would it be compelling... If followers of Jesus Christ had a reputation for being known as some of the best workers you could hire, would that be good? Would that be good? Yeah. Would that be compelling? Would that make the gospel of Jesus Christ look good? Yeah, it would. And and the good thing is, is that to a certain degree that's happening. I have a friend who used to work at Schreiber Foods just over here uh, on PV. and, um, And his boss told him that, hey, if you ever have anybody from your church who needs a job, tell them to come to work for me because the people that I have who work for me from Kettlebrook Church are some of the best employees I've ever had. Isn't that awesome? That's great. That's doing exactly what Paul is saying here in Titus chapter 2, verse 9, that we are good employees, that we work hard, that we're trustworthy, that we're some of the most faithful and hardworking employees around. And as we do that, we make Jesus look good. We make the gospel attractive. And Paul is saying over and over again in this passage that the most compelling evidence and argument for the gospel are lives that have been transformed by Jesus Christ himself. We've, been, we've allowed Jesus to just come into our lives and permeate our lives and allowed his ethics and his priorities and his values become our ethics and our values and our priorities and we become people begin to take notice around us. And, and this is actually how the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading in some of the most unlikely areas of the world. In the Muslim world, there are, there are areas and there are countries where uh, Christianity is growing just exponentially, off the charts. You don't hear about it because they don't report this on the network news at night. But it's just growing off the charts. And what typically happens in a Muslim context is this, is that a Muslim comes to faith in Christ and then, and then they boldly declare to everyone around them that they're a Christian. Okay? The Bible never uses the word Christian, but in a Muslim context, Christian is not a very good word. So they boldly proclaim, I'm a Christian, and then they get killed or they get ostracized from their family. I'm serious. That's typically what happens. In places where the gospel and the church is growing the fastest in Muslim contexts, is that a, someone becomes a, a Christian, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, and then they allow Jesus to, to change them so they become the best version of them that they could possibly be. They become the best husband. They become the best wife. They become the best employee. They become the kindest neighbor. And they just begin to, to live out the gospel in their life. And what happens is that their neighbors come to them or their family members come to them and they say, what's gotten into you? You are so different. And they say, well, you know what? I've begun to follow the teachings of the prophet Jesus. And Jesus is one of the Islamic prophets in their whole 
kind of canon there. And they said, would you be interested in studying the teachings of the prophet Jesus with me? And they say, sure, I would. And as they begin to study the, the, the teachings of Jesus, they begin to become intrigued by Jesus. And they begin to become compelled to Jesus. And then they begin become convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, the way, the truth, and the life. And you have whole demographic segments in the Muslim world coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But it begins, it begins with a compelling lifestyle. And the same thing that's true in the Middle East is true right here in West Bend, Wisconsin. Is that if we want to portray and demonstrate a compelling version of Christianity in the world around us, it has to begin with us, allowing our lives to be changed so that we can demonstrate it to the people around us through our marriages, through our families, through how we work in our employment, how we go to school, all these things. But it begins with us. Wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if, if we became a whole community of people who learned how to do this well, allowed Jesus to change us so much that the people around us would be put on inquiry and begin to ask us about why we live the way we live. And then we have an opportunity to share them. Share with them about Jesus Christ. I just want to end with one story from author Hugh Halter, who wrote the book Flesh. We wrote, went through this as a book, as a church, a few years ago. He talks about his interaction with a friend that he had. He says, as we were driving back down from a day of snowboarding together, Kevin said, So, my wife and I were talking the other day about how much we love coming over to see you and Cheryl. The thought dawned on us that we hardly ever call you in advance and tell you we're coming. We really should. But we are amazed at how you and Cheryl never seem to fight and your house is always so peaceful. I laughed. Always peaceful. Are you kidding me? Our house is crazy sometimes. The girls can have some tough moments and Cheryl and I do have a few tiffs on occasion. We just don't have any of those biggies anymore. Kevin pressed in. So you used to fight a lot? Oh yeah, just about every day. We killed each other the first five years of our marriage, I replied. So how do you not fight now? Carol and I are still going at it all the time. Jokingly, I responded, yeah, I know, because every time I come over to your house, you guys are fighting. I know, I feel terrible. But it's like we just don't have a clue how to treat each other, especially in public. Do you have any advice? Now listen to this. As I stared out the window, peering into the vast opportunities Kevin was presenting to me, I prayed, took a deep breath, and said, Kevin, I'd love to give you a little advice I've learned over the years, but to do so, I'd have to speak really honestly about my faith in Jesus. Are you okay with that? And he says, yes, of course. That's what I kind of figured you would say. I just didn't know how to ask you. If we want people to see the gospel and have them learn about Jesus, it becomes, begins with us living compelling lives that have been changed by Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we've been going through this book of Titus, um, we have just, we've become, I've become convinced that we're struggling. We're struggling to really be compelling followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, overall, we've been known for a judgmentalism. We've been learned, known for 
other things, um, arrogance. But we really want to display you well. We really want to make the teaching of God, our Savior, attractive to the world around us. I pray, Father, that we would be a whole community of people who have been, had our lives so transformed, so changed by you, Jesus, as you come into our lives by the Holy Spirit, that we would put people on inquiry and they would become curious as to why we live the way we do. And at that moment, we get a chance to point back to you and say, it's, it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus in my life. To you be all the glory. We pray this in your name.